Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's Washington, D.C. Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It is Thursday, July 18th, and here's what's on the docket this week. Elon Musk revealed to the world his plans to merge man and machine. Rebecca was there to see it, and we're going to ask her about the experience. Gilead Sciences is spending $5 billion on an interesting gambit to brighten its future. We'll pick apart what was biotech's biggest news of the week. For companies in digital health, therapeutic apps can't just be effective. They also have to be usable and welcoming and trustworthy. Stats Megan Thielking joins us to talk about everything that goes into making software meant to improve mental health. And last but not least, we'll bring you another lightning round. This one will feature hot takes on a clinical trial on Bumpy Seas, the latest in biotech dealmaking, and the musician Grimes's ridiculous fitness regimen. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at STAT with a STAT Plus subscription. STAT Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to STAT Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. So first up, we're going to talk about Elon Musk and the big splash he made in the world of science this week. If you haven't already heard, the billionaire entrepreneur behind Tesla and SpaceX unveiled what his neurotechnology startup Neuralink has been working on. So the big reveal was on Tuesday evening, and the news was that the startup has developed technology meant to be implanted into the brain. Uh, That technology is designed to allow people to operate computers and smartphones with their thoughts. So Neuralink has only reported unpublished data in rats, but it wants to start human tests in paralyzed patients by the end of next year. So Rebecca was there in person in San Francisco to cover the Elon Musk show. So Rebecca, um, where are we on the scale of like, you know, from one to Black Mirror? Yeah, I think we are well into Black Mirror territory. And I think Elon Musk would make a perfect character on that show. So yeah, as we mentioned, you were there for the big reveal in San Francisco. Can you set the scene for us about what the event was like? Yeah, so it was held at a science museum in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. And this was quite literally a secret location. So this event was invitation only. You had to fill out an online form making a case as to why you should get to go. And people who got the invitation were asked for security reasons to not publicly share the location of the event and to not bring any bags. It was a weird vibe for a corporate update. There was also kind of a festive atmosphere too. People were taking selfies. There were a lot of engineers and tech people in the crowd. Everyone seemed really young to me. You know, this was not, for the most part, a crowd of of kind of older neuroscientists and and academics. So this, this sounds a little bit like kind of the cult of Elon Musk. Uh, Rebecca, so what was he like on stage? Elon Musk, I would say, engaged in performance art at this event. He presented very little in the way of hard data. Uh, In fact, animal data really only came up in the context of a question from a a member of the audience. 
Elon Musk did lots of waxing philosophical about merging with AI. He talked about the need for such technology at a civilization level scale. He talked about a benign AI scenario. He talked about being in transcendence. It was a lot. Let's listen in on one of the more absurd parts. You know, there's that whole idea, what if we were just a brain in a vat? Uh, this is often posed by philosophers, uh, except we are a brain in a vat, and that, that vat is our skull. Um, everything that you perceive, feel, hear, think, it's, it's all action potentials. It's all just it's neural spikes. Um, and it feels so real. Yeah, it feels very real. But, but it's, it's this, these are all uh, impulses from neurons, what, what's called a, a spike. So Rebecca, you had mentioned that this was not the first time you saw the brain in the vat called Elon Musk speak, right? Yeah, so way back in 2011, when I was working for an alt-weekly in Southern California, I went to an event where I saw Elon Musk at a Air Force base um, speaking about SpaceX. Um, they, they had done a launch. And he was a different character then. He was like much more of a normal CEO type. He talked differently. The whole thing was much more businesslike. And it, it was very striking to see this character that Elon Musk has become. And I think one in which being as weird as possible serves his interests in talking about brain decoding implants. So, Rebecca, as we mentioned earlier, Neuralink is very early stage. It's got unpublished data. Nothing's been peer reviewed. The data that they have is like in 19 rats. So so then, uh, bizarrely, Elon started to ad lib about results that they may have in monkeys. Tell us about that. Yeah. So up on stage, Elon Musk and his team were talking about the company's animal research. They mentioned that um, they're working with UC Davis to do some research in monkeys. Then in one of the most striking parts of this presentation, Elon went totally off script in a way that the rest of his team was not expecting. Let's listen in on that moment. Uh, uh, you know, Monkey has been able to control the computer with his brain. Just, you know, yeah. <laughs> FYI. I, I didn't realize so, we were running that result today, but there well, it goes. <laughs> so other than reining in the cyborg monkey they've created, what is next for Neuralink? So our stat colleague, Sharon Bagley, and I talked to a bunch of neuroscientists about what Neuralink has shared so far. And by and large, these neuroscientists are impressed. They see real potential here, although the caveats abound. But in order to really convince the scientific community and, and actually meet their goals, Neuralink is going to have to start publishing. They're going to have to start generating real data. And they're also going to have to start engaging very seriously with the FDA uh, about starting human trials. And that should be interesting because we've seen how it's gone in the past when Elon Musk crosses with regulators. Daniel O'Day became CEO of Gilead Sciences four and a half months ago. He promised to revamp the stagnating biotech giant. And this week, we got the first look at O'Day's turnaround strategy for Gilead. It included a big R&D deal, as well as some high-profile reshuffling of the executive suite. 
So we'll start with that deal, which was announced last Sunday. Uh, Gilead is spending $5 billion to deepen an existing research and development relationship that it has with Galapagos. That's a Belgian biotech company. Galapagos, in effect, becomes an independent drug development arm of Gilead, which in turn gains options on six Galapagos drugs that are currently in human clinical trials and another 20 drugs in earlier stages of development. So, Damien, tell us, what does this Galapagos Alliance tell us about O'Day's strategy for Gilead? It's interesting, and I feel like the most obvious analogy is to Roche, the company that Daniel O'Day was at for more than a decade prior to his taking over Gilead. Um, Roche quite famously had a relationship with Genentech that was not dissimilar to the one that Gilead has just created with Galapagos, in which you know Roche had become the majority shareholder of Genentech, and the companies are much closer business aligned now, but even still Genentech remains a somewhat independent arm of the Swiss giant that is Roche. And you know Gilead, as we've talked about a lot on this podcast, has an incredible amount of cash and could have easily, you know, made a godfather offer to Galapagos to which they couldn't have said no, but O'Day made the choice to maintain its independence. And I think, you know, that suggests that he is of the mind of pharma people that just buying something that you like runs the risk of ruining it by bringing it into your corporate strictures. So I think, yeah, this is our first glimpse at Daniel O'Day's conceptualization of how, like, corporate pharma research should go. And I also think that this deal with Galapagos is also kind of a a tacit acknowledgement that Gilead's internal R&D efforts are really not bearing fruit. You know, they've had some setbacks recently with their with drugs to treat the fatty liver disease known as NASH. And really the kind of the only big bright spot in Gilead's existing pipeline is a drug called filgotinib for rheumatoid arthritis, which actually comes from Galapagos, and that's a relationship that they've had, I think, since 2015. So now I think what's interesting here is you see O'Day kind of almost doubling or tripling down on this relationship that it has or that it will have with Galapagos to kind of bolster the the R&D pipeline. So question, why didn't Gilead just buy Galapagos? Yeah, I think that's interesting. As I mentioned before, it's not for lack of available American currency. But I think, you know, there are a lot of data points in the history of the drug industry where maybe just buying a company and merging it outright wasn't the best idea. I mean, most recently, when Celgene acquired Juno Therapeutics in order to get its hands on CAR-T technology, all of the early signs were that the marriage was a little bit awkward. It was, they were having difficulty maintaining some of the people uh, within Juno, some of the key employees who understood CAR-T. And there was, I don't want to say a culture clash, that's a little too extreme, but Celgene is a fairly conservative New Jersey-based company, and Juno was this West Coast, Seattle-based company that at one point had, as I understand it, beer taps in the office. And so I wonder if, you know, looking at stories like Celgene Juno, the people at Gilead, Daniel O'Day, thought, let's not force them into our way of thinking. Let's just unite in this fashion, and and maybe we can preserve what we like so much about them. So this is the perennial question about Gilead, but I must ask, are there going to be more deals coming? Well, O'Day has promised more deals. Uh, you know, when he spoke to our colleague Matt Herper, uh, who wrote the story about this deal, you know, he did say that look, this is this is one of many things that that they're considering doing. Uh, you know, more recently, there's been some speculation that Gilead is going to buy a, a drug called Otesla. Uh, that's a drug to treat psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis that was developed and is now marketed by Celgene. It does about one and a half, one point six billion dollars in sales. Now, as we all know, Bristol Myers Squibb 
is in the process of buying Celgene, but to get that deal sort of through the the antitrust regulation process quickly, Bristol Myers Squibb has said that they're going to spin out, they're going to sell Otesla. And so there's been a lot of speculation about which pharma biotech company is going to buy it. And, you know, there's a chance that Gilead might buy that drug. It would fit in well with their portfolio. So as we mentioned above, there was also some executive reshuffling at Gilead. So days after the Galapagos deal was announced, Gilead said that its chief scientific officer, that's John McHutchinson, was leaving the company. Damien, are these two things linked at all? I mean, probably. There's the possibility that some of these departures are the effect of Daniel O'Day kind of cleaning house because... Maybe he was displeased with the existing R&D efforts that, that he came in. He was sort of brought into Gilead, I don't want to say to rescue them, but at a time at a time in flux for the company. But then it's also possible that veterans from the old administration don't really like the new direction or deciding to leave. And then there's the third and, and maybe most likely thing, which is that you know people work at companies for a long time and, and then they decide to pursue new opportunities. I mean, a lot of things are changing in Gilead. I don't think it's necessarily contentious behind the scenes. It's just, this is the next part of the revolution. Yeah. And I think we should note that McCutcheon joined Gilead in 2010. So he kind of was there, you know, he was sort of there after obviously their dominant HIV business was already well established, but he did, he was there for all of the hepatitis C stuff that happened, you know, sort of the, the huge spike in sales and then the fall. And, you know, I, I think his departure is just another sign. You know, it's, it's one of sort of many departures from the sort of the old guard at Gilead. And, and it, it's, it certainly is a sign that O'Day is sort of trying to bring in his own people. So what are you guys going to be looking for to see if O'Day's new strategy for Gilead is going to work? I mean, in the most simplistic terms, some of these drugs have to start working. That has been the story of the recent history of Gilead is that a lot of seemingly promising bets on uh, diseases, including NASH, the fatty liver disease, have just not really come through. So yeah, again, this is oversimplistic, but what what would be a good sign for Daniel O'Day is some good news every once in a while. Yeah, look, I think what needs to happen at Gilead is, is I think investors need to see some real concrete signs that, that growth is returning to the company. Because right now, you know, they've sort of like sort of stabilized the ship, but there aren't a lot of signs that, you know, we're going to see, you know, a significant increase in the growth and earnings and sales. And so that's what people are looking for. This Galapagos deal that they did is, you know, certainly interesting and sort of promising, but it's not going to necessarily deliver sort of near-term growth. So again, I think that to sort of judge O'Day's kind of early tenure at Gilead will kind of come down to sort of what other deals he does and also sort of where the company grows, you know, how, how it shows it's going to grow earnings and revenue into the future. So by this point, we all understand the basic idea of digital therapeutics, which is using some kind of software to do things that used to only be possible with traditional medicine. But in practical terms, it's a little more complicated. A pill doesn't have to be pretty to treat disease, but a therapeutic app needs to be well-designed and welcoming if anyone's going to actually use it. So that's why companies in the digital health world are going beyond doctors and software developers and reaching out to animators and designers and podcasters in hopes of creating a patient-friendly product that works. Stat to Megan Thilking wrote a story this week about all that goes into making a mental health app. And she joins us now to talk about it. 
Megan, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So to start out, what kind of apps are we talking about? Like, what do these products aim to do? So there's all kinds of apps for mental health. There's apps for anxiety. There's just apps for general stress. There's apps to help you meditate. So there's really a broad range of things, and it's definitely a growing area. And they aim, I think, in many cases to sort of be a complement to other kinds of mental health care. So Megan, as you wrote in your story, uh, in order for these apps to actually help anyone, they really have to be welcoming, responsive, and maybe most importantly, they have to inspire trust. How do developers approach that challenge? Yeah, so they have to look at all kinds of things. They have to look at even just starting with what it looks like when you open the app. Does it dive right into a treatment or an exercise or whatever it is? Or is there sort of a little bit of warm up and banter like when you would be talking to a therapist? And they have to add in little details just like uh, an animator in a movie would, like expressive eyebrows that make their characters look a little more human. And then they have to think about the clinical side of it and how you translate something that's typically done in person into an app that and an exercise that you can do on your own, on your phone, in your house, or wherever you are. So specifically, let's talk about Daylight, which is one of the apps that, that you wrote about. What is it and, and how did it come to be? So Daylight is uh, one app in this sort of crowded field of mental health apps right now. It's designed for people with anxiety. Uh, it's being studied in a clinical trial right now, so it's not available to the public really. But it's being developed by this company called Big Health. And the app itself is based on a common treatment called cognitive behavioral therapy. And so the design team there has worked with psychologists to sort of pull out elements of CBT that they want to communicate with users and looking really for ones that will make sense to do on your own. And then they figure out how to sort of communicate those ideas, those clinical ideas, using metaphors or characters or illustrations or animations, all that kind of stuff. So Megan, one thing that struck me is just how delicate a situation it must be to design an app for mental health. You know, there are so many risks of trivializing something serious or stigmatizing the symptoms or just striking the wrong tone in general. So how do developers walk those many fine lines? I think it's really, really hard, and I don't think that they always do it. You know, I talked to some outside people about what it takes to sort of make a good mental health app, and they said one of the big challenges is designing an app that's evidence-based and that actually works and is effective, but another big challenge is making people actually want to use it, and I think that a big part of that is not isolating people with, like you said, trivializing their experiences or stigmatizing them or making an awkward joke or just whatever it is, you know, making people essentially want to put down that app and not pick it back up again. Just in the one example when we were talking about daylight, I mean, the way that they found how to walk those lines or are trying to find how to walk those lines is essentially by just putting the app in front of a lot of people and testing it and saying, like, what did you think of this? Did this cutesy little joke or phrase land? Did it add a little playfulness to what might be a challenging exercise for your anxiety. I think it's really a lot of trial and error for apps. So we've talked about what goes into these apps in terms of trying to make them usable and thus effective, but how much evidence do we have on whether they're effective? Not a lot of evidence at all. I mean, like I said, there's a lot of mental health apps out there on the market. Um, this particular one that was the big focus of my story, Daylight, it's still being studied, so we don't really know yet how well it works for people with anxiety. There was a paper that came out earlier this year looking at dozens of mental health apps and the scientific language that they used about the apps and also the evidence behind them, and almost none of them had really robust research behind them. It's pretty limited. The app makers do use sort of scientific language to 
tout what the apps can do, but they almost never have evidence backing that up. Megan, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. And now for the moment that you cherish in every podcast. It's the lightning round. We're going to start this week with a kind of an odd clinical trial that involved boats, rough seas, and vomit. Damien, what was going on there? So there's a company called Vanda Pharmaceuticals, which has a drug that it hopes can treat motion sickness. And in order to test this, uh, they cooked up the idea for a study in which they would take a bunch of presumably innocent human beings out on a boat ride on choppy seas and just see who threw up and who didn't. So I have a lot of questions about this, but I think the first one is, why would someone ever volunteer to be part of this trial? That's a great question. I also think about the poor schmuck who has to actually run this study. Can you imagine being the guy who has to like sit there with a clipboard to record who's vomiting and who's not vomiting, how much they're vomiting? <laughs> That's just like... I wish there was a video recording of this clinical trial. That that would be something worth watching. We are kind of bearing the lead here, though. Uh, d- Adam, did the did the drug work? Apparently, it does reduce the amount of vomiting that occurs. Uh, and I think what was interesting, they actually looked at the they tested the drug in, I guess, calm seas versus rough seas. Um, I don't know exactly how they measured, like how they decided which was which, but uh, when they took these poor people out in rough seas. The drug apparently worked a little bit better than it did in uh, in calmer seas. We should also express sympathy for whoever it was on their IRB who had to form a clinical definition of rough seas. This is really the cutting edge of science. So we're now more than halfway through 2019, which is a little crazy. And that means data on biotech financing and deals for the first half of the year are out. Damien, walk us through the latest numbers. Yeah, I mean, it's arguably kind of a no news is good news thing. With respect to venture capital going into drug development companies, uh, the raw number was slightly down in the second quarter versus the first quarter, but it's important to zoom out and realize that that industry has just been setting records pretty consistently for the past few years. So, you know, I don't think there's anything to fret about. The, The takeaway for me that I think is increasingly interesting is that the actual numbers of deals, even while the dollar amount goes up, have stayed pretty consistent. And so what you're kind of seeing is a haves and have nots situation, which, you know, if you, if you follow the headlines in, in biotech venture capital fundraising, what you'll often notice is these mega rounds have become very common. So it's not necessarily $20 million being sprinkled out to a multitude of ideas. It's $300 million being dumped upon a company, you know, with the, the pedigree of one of the major VC institutions. And I think one could express concern that uh, that model might not be super sustainable in the long term. So lastly, uh, we've already talked about Elon Musk, and now we should maybe mention Elon's girlfriend, the the singer Grimes. She had a rather insane Instagram post this week, Rebecca, is that correct? Yes. So Grimes took to Instagram and explained her training regimen, which I have to say is orders of magnitude more extreme than anything Gwyneth Paltrow could have possibly dreamed up. So Grimes's routine involves sword fighting, screaming, setting a, quote, neuroplastic goal, unquote, and using supplements to maximize the function of her mitochondria. But the best part involved eye surgery. I think we need to do a dramatic reading of what she said on Instagram about getting eye surgery because it was wild. Damien, do you want to do the honors? I'm not going to try to impersonate Grimes, who's 
uh, vocal register as well beyond my own, but it goes like this. I have also eliminated all blue light from my vision through an experimental surgery that removes the top film of my eyeball and replaces it with an orange ultraflex polymer that my friend and I made in the lab this past winter as a means to cure seasonal depression. So how much of this do we think is satire or performance art? There's no way she actually got this surgery, right? Oh yeah, 100%. I think this was... Actually, she might have been joking about this part, too, but at least according to the caption, this was part of a partnership with Adidas where they're asking famous people about how they train. Adidas, of course, makes uh, sportswear. And Grimes, um, you know, took it to sort of an absurdist extreme. You you could argue this is maybe this is too deep into like the Grimes hive. There was a faction, a large faction of her fandom that was disappointed when she revealed her relationship with Elon Musk because... There was sort of a like anti-establishment cyberpunk kind of quasi-communist thing running through Grimes' music, and then her being cool with a billionaire who kind of seems like a villain in a cyberpunk novel was troubling. And so, arguably, Grimes is maybe making this absurd joke to kind of deflect from the fact that she's shilling for Adidas. But then we should mention that after all this sort of stuff about neuroplastic goals and functioning of her mitochondria and her eye surgery. At the end of the day, when Grimes goes to sleep, she turns on a humidifier. And that was the kicker of the post. As journalists, we always look for the most compelling way to end a story. And that is a kicker that any journalist would dream to come up with. And that does it for another episode of The Readout Lab. Thank you to Dom Smith, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode. Tell us about your own exercise regimen. And you can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback, so thank you. And if you like what we do, please do leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.